Right. So this is wholly unscripted and barely edited, save for the diamond. Might contain spoilers. But if you've ever been curious as to what goes on with the writer when he sits down with some friends at a coffee table, a couch, or somewhere outside, here's your chance to find out. This is Here Be Tigers. True to form, in an episode about where to begin things, we uh, went off on a tangent or two first. So, for your benefit, we're going to begin this one in media res. We did touch upon, I think, both the initial idea that led to this conversation we're in now, and hopefully I'll introduce you at some point, although by now <laughs> I think people are familiar enough with you, being on this podcast, to know who you are. So we may just save that for later. There are... We started this conversation, although you wouldn't know it because I pressed the record button too late, <laughs> talking about where to begin the story or where to begin the scene or where to begin, where to begin so that you, the audience, care or have a reason to, be, to feel involved or engaged in the characters and their narrative. And there is a great... Not that writing has many rules, per se, because a great portion of writing is breaking the rules that were established or the norms that we've become acclimated to. But this is, I would say, a good rule past to follow in the general sense, passed down to me through my earliest writing teacher, Jason Ockert, who studied with George Sondra and Juno Diaz, and Diaz particularly was fond of asking this damnable question whenever someone handed a story in. And sometimes that would be the only piece of feedback he gave Jason, which was, why now? Jason's interpretation of this was that every story begins with the disruption of ritual, of the usual, of the norm. Hence, the why now is the break, the change, the difference. And the question asked is something that should lead you to what has destroyed, what has been destroyed, what has broken down, what has changed, what has led things to a point where they inevitably must now be different. Why are people acting where they didn't before? Because obviously this is the part we're interested in. And of course, this is partly within a field of storytelling where you don't begin purely in the earliest moment chronologically. You begin in the moment that is most engrossing. And specifically to the characters that you are focused on. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes the, the, the overriding what's going on in the background could be happening and would continue happening or continue moving towards whatever it was going to move towards with, you know, not with or without the characters, but it had a direction it was going. Right. And to actually touch upon our Western discussion we had briefly, and when I get Bill on, we'll dig more into this, the idea of in media res, of starting in the moment of action, of in the moment of things occurring in the space, and going right from there, so that you, the audience, are turning the next page or giving another minute of your time to go, okay, what is pulling me into this story? Or I will, I will suspend my disbelief of what is occurring, regardless of how fantastic or bizarre or how many porgs on screen there are. Hmm. That's in bringing up Star Wars, this was uh, one of the ones I was going to. This actually, this started not with the question of why now, that's where we got to. Uh, this entire thing started actually early on. Oh, before we get further, my name is David Herman of the Brothers Herman. Um, you can uh, check out our podcasts at uh, the Geekly Oddcast and Otter Worlds. And I uh, hope you enjoy. So the, the the discussion we were having that led to this was the discussion of those little moments that tell you something. Mm -hmm. But of course, how do you tell which ones are the important and which ones are superfluous that you the, and you want to get rid of? And I think we centered in on well, the ones that are important are the ones that are telling you a bit of why now, what has changed, and all of that. And it started with a conversation about Star Wars, and it's interesting because that why now thing happens on like two different levels. Okay. Uh, with Star Wars. The first one being, if you're focused on Luke and on Han and Obi-Wan and all of that, the why now is literally because the droids just came into their life. That was the breaking up of the status quo. Mm -hmm. That had that space battle. It finally hit them and, and pushed them out of their boundaries. So there's your why now for them. As for why now, as far as the rest, why now? Why did that space battle occur? Why... You know, why is... It's not just... Because the why now is not just why are the characters acting. The why now is also why is there a chance of success? Why is there the revol Why is there the empire? Why is there the rev revolution against it? What has led to them being so desperate that all they have is this opportunity to fire off a couple droids? And right. And, and everything actually centers on the Death Star. 
I, I realized um, after looking at all these little changes no room. that all of these little things, like there's these great comments like, hey, we just disbanded the Senate. Um, Was it disbanded or dissolved? Either way, I mean... Well, I, I like the idea of dissolved because they could mean literally <laughs> dissolved. I think, I think they did say dissolved. Okay. Um, but, that's, but just the fact that they, they dissolved the Senate isn't the why now, well, you know, why is a space battle happening now... It's actually the the other way around. The it's because the Death Star was finally ready that they could take that step to dissolve the last remnants of the Republic. We no longer need the pretense that we are a Republic. The, a Republic. We no longer need the pretense that we're the same thing you've been living in all along. Even as things have been changing and going downhill, and yeah, we're calling ourselves an empire now, but no, it's the veil's been lifted. The, the veil's been lifted. That's also why the rebellion. It's it's why all of a sudden, see, we're on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. That's what Leia said, and and Darth Vader, you know, says, "Who cares?" Actually, that's when they say that the the Senate's been disbanded. Yes, you know, because you can't appeal to them anymore. The kid gloves are off. We can now go after the the rebellion like full bore. It's also why the rebellion needs to attack. It needs those plans that are the center point of the entire story. Because those are the plans for the Death Star. Everything hinges around the fact that the Death Star is finally operational. It's, it's That's the why now. Not just in the, now this is why we have to act, but also this is why we have a chance to act. And it's fascinating because how much of that is actually conveyed in the first few scenes? Most of it. Except you don't realize the full ramifications of those few scenes. Everything's been set up, but... You know, until you see the Death Star in action, and actually even until you're on it and you see the fact that they're they're choosing their targets willy-nilly, uh, you don't get a sense for just how devastating it is. It's interesting. My friend Jared Haas, he was a hu- huge history buff. And do you know his favorite character was in the original Star Wars? Grand Moff Tarkin. Hmm. The man who devised, implemented, built, and established the actual running Death Star, which is effectively a small planet. Basically, yeah. And ran it. And the amount of effort and brilliance involved in making the threat, the potential of a galactic empire into a reality, a fist to fit, an iron fist to fit in the velvet glove, Mm. and allow them to basically say, look, we no longer have to pretend. I mean, Lucas benefits from playing off Flash Gordon's early crawl, kind of a trope at the time. But it didn't provide as much as the other comments did. No, and... To, to be fair, the actual set establishing scenes of we don't need to know the Death Star is fully there, but the ramifications of that and what that would lead people to saying or to thinking about or to being concerned about or acting upon in those first few scenes drive the opening moment. And it's the the why now is, I'm phrasing this wrong, but why we begin the story where we do. Because there's the question of why now, which is why does the story occur in this greater context? But there's also the smaller question of why do we begin with this particular moment? Mm-hmm. Why is this more compelling? Why is this more engaging than any other point at which we could have started? I mean, we could have opened with Tatooine. Yeah. And that's Luke dicking around with Moisture Farm. And yes, maybe we could have, like we see with some more modern movies and some older ones too, like Casablanca, spend a good 20 minutes of Luke dicking around with Moisture Farm and potentially even having the droids land and then having everything else unfold from there. Mm-hmm. But then you'd never get the sense of... You'd get the urgency out of Leia because you'd see the hologram, but you'd never get the sense of... Threat. Threat. Of grandeur. Mm-hmm. Of how desperate. Because, yes, you'd have Leia's hologram saying, please, we're going to fall apart. We're going to lose. But that's it. But against who and against what? And you wouldn't get to see the Empire gloating either. Their, no. their utter confidence in it. Actually, their utter confidence sets two things in motion. One is the fact that they are powerful, and they know it, and they, they're they arrogant. And the second one is it gives Vader a, a thing to play off of, which also lets you set up the idea that the Force might actually have some hope, because... From a dramatic standpoint, it's incredibly early for a story to introduce the villain. I... He wasn't. If you if you look at the narrative of the first movie, true, he's not the villain. He's he's a uh, what do they call it on TV tropes? The uh, he's a dragon. Uh, well, I mean, and he actually always is through the entire series, even as he takes more and more of a center role. I suppose the villain's the wrong sense there, but the 
the dragon, for those of you unfamiliar with TV tropes, it's essentially what happens when you take anthropology and lit theory and let a bunch of pop culture nerds apply both. <laughs> that's not the dragon. That's TV tropes in general. Oh, TV tropes is the dragon to lit theory. <laughs> so the okay. So the basic idea is you've got the big bad. All right. In the first movie, it's not the emperor. It that it's the the emperor and actually in the first movie it's it's Grand Moff Tarkin. In the second movie. It's Darth Vader. There you get the impression of the Emperor above him, sure. but he's the big bad and direct and calling all the shots. In the third movie, it's the Emperor, and Vader's once again the well, dragon. I suppose the, the inversion, the twist as to who the villain is or the main threat is, gets muddied when Vader challenges Tarkin and is put in his place. Mm -hmm. So at first you think, here's a... Well, I think, it, I think part of the reason is you set Vader up as this juggernaut. You see him on the ship, he's terrifying. Mm -hmm. You see him almost kill one of the Imperial officers, who was just basically saying, oh, the Force is stupid, and Vader just starts choking him from across the room. And Tarkin, unfazed, goes, you know, Vader, bad, stop it. <laughs> bad dog, put him down. And, and Vader, and so in, one, in, in three unconcerned words, Tarkin establishes himself as someone truly frightening because he can make the juggernaut back off. Well, and I think that's the... That also helps to reinforce the idea that the Empire itself is the force they're fighting against. It's not right. the individuals of it. It is this monolithic existence that threatens to take everything, of which even something as terrifying individually as Vader can be controlled or restrained. And that's, I think, one of the things... The, the later two movies get too focused on Vader and the Emperor in that sense... So you're fighting them, you're not fighting. To be fair, that's that's a fair thing to happen later on That's in the an story. interesting part of the writing process, too, because he didn't establish Vader as Luke's father until deep into Empire Strikes Back. Although, ironically, Vader is Dutch for father. But that was probably a coincidence. Yes. He wanted the archetype of Dark Father, and of mm. course, true to Lucas's nomenclature. Well, I think, he, I think one of the reasons that he was called that um, is because he was the one who... Murdered Luke's father, yeah, and that would be a reasonable. I killed your father was right. supposed to be in, in a, an allegorical sense. Yes, he still remains true to that. Mm -hmm. The, I, the other thing to keep in mind, particularly with the Star Wars example, and I don't want to belabor it, although it is large and well known, is that Lucas wrote it with Campbell's Hero of a Thousand right. Faces in mind, and that lays out a fairly well, particularly in films, established method for how to tell the story. Well, but again, that sets up the why now for Luke. Mm -hmm. It doesn't set up the why now for the Emperor uh, Empire. That he did on his own. Yes. Uh, if you go to, um, let's say, Final Fantasy VI, right? You get it, you get, get an, um, an instance is, where you in some have, ways, in, or in many ways, analogous to Star Wars. But you get only one of them and not the other. Sure. So you open up. Well, the why now? Why are why are why is your first character starting now? She's just been freed from like a mind control device. It's the first chance she's had to act in however long, and that's the why now for her. And that's and and that even sets up a little bit of the why now for the rest of the characters because she can use magic and they had never seen that before. It was considered a dead thing of the past, right? Um, and so they're like, whoa, you, we, you might actually be able to help us turn the tide. And that's great. That sets up for the, your very first set of characters, the why now. But the why now for the Empire? It's been in the process of, going to, uh, of enacting this plan. And it's continuing the process of enacting this plan. And there's no specific moment why, why the things are happening now... Uh, there's no specific reason why they're happening now as opposed to six months ago or a year ago. Um, again... There's a, there's a reason why they're attacking the town they're attacking, because this thing called an Esper has just been uncovered. But why that's of interest to them, or why it's so necessary for them to acquire it. Right. Everything that they do, they end up not getting it. So their plan isn't stopped by Oddly not getting enough, it. Oddly enough, I would argue, and it's funny, so Terra's the character, arguably, for those of you who haven't played, whose arc dictates the nature of the first half of the game. Mm. It's... Her foil, in many senses, Celis, who is someone who is artificially given the ability to do the same thing with magic, is technically the view, or arguably the viewpoint character of the second arc, but second half. And I would argue Celis's beginning narrative to that half is more is le is more internally focused. One, it, but also the thing that drives her, yeah, to leave the point of stasis she's in. 
and also provides a why now for the rest of the story, uh, because Kefka is by that point what he is. Right, he's so not doing anything. To, to give the audience context, the 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 fellow who who is definitely at this point the villain has more or less ruined the world, and you are all survivors and the remnants thereof. Celis is living on an island with her foster father Sid, and she is content to stay there and spend the rest of her days together with a man who raised her from what we presume is childhood, even though he made her to a certain degree the monster she is. Sid quickly catches ill, though, and you as the player are given the opportunity to find fish for him to eat. The game does not tell you which ones to get or which ones are best for Sid. So in an early example of character and player agency affecting a portion of the story's outcome, you can accidentally kill him. At which point, and this is one of the darkest moments in all of Final Fantasy, your character will try to commit suicide and fail, but try. And it's only because she fails that the rest of the story happened. I actually forget, because the first time I played, I went after the slow-moving fish because they were... You know, th- this is the evil part. There were two kinds of fish, the slow and the fast-moving, mm-hmm. and it was easier to catch the slow-moving, which are, of course, the sick ones. Mm-hmm. You give him enough of those, he dies, you jump off the fish and attempted suicide. I don't remember what happens if you save him. Oh, he, he wakes back up. Like, the, so the thing is, um, when you... Both paths sort of lead to the same place. Of course. Which is there's a hidden raft in, like, a hidden room. If you manage to get him to survive, he'll just show you where the room is and say, you got to go, I'll be fine here. If if you he dies, you end up, after failing to commit suicide, you end up finding a note from him convincing you not to try again. And which is even go. darker, because he presumed you would. Yeah. Or he probably just says, you know, don't end it all. And you're like, oh, okay. What's very interesting is, uh, psychologically, the, the main bad guy is a outright nihilist who derives pleasure from the suffering of others. No, he starts out as someone who derives no, no. pleasure from the well, suffering of others. Let's be honest. Others. The main villain's a clown. That's the real problem. No. I mean, well, he... By the time the second half of the story's happened, he's, de- he's degenerated into outright nihilism. He wants the world to end, but it's not enough that it ends. It has to end in despair. As since everybody's kind of giving up in the world and trying, struggling to survive, but mostly not doing anything. Like, they're, they're mostly like, oh, God, this sucks. He's pretty much content until your characters come in going, okay, there's got to be something better and trying to break up the status quo. The main motivation for the villain is the fact that the characters aren't giving up. So in that particular sense, in the second half of the game, the why now is entirely the fact that you've decided to live. And he can't stand that, and you're not giving up. And and it's it's the why for both. What's interesting, particularly for an early series, this is 19... Uh, let's see. I I think it was 1994. Yeah. So this is the series is now officially 30 plus years old, mm. and this is still fairly early on. It was number three when it initially came out in the states, and six according to the full chronology of them. Eventually, the rest reported over, but that's boring news, and you can hear about it on the Geekly Oddcast when we go into too much depth, <laughs> game at a time, with the rest of his brothers and other guests who love them, as do I, but. It was one of the earliest games where, yes, even though you could rally the troops, gather all your friends, your acquaintances, you could neglect to save a number of them and leave them to wallow or die in despair before, and, while you go on your final confrontation. Them, and most of them were. If I'm if I'm going through, um, Celeste Seven, Edgar, uh, and Edgar had not given up. Because uh, you find Sab and he's trying to hold up a, build, a burning building so um, right. other people can escape. He had not given up. Right. But, okay, Strago had basically joined a cult. Gal had gone back to his... his Strago joined the happy cult, the happy blue people cult. Yeah. Uh, Gal had gone back to uh, the monsters that raised him. Um, Tara had found one village and was protecting a small group of children, and that was it. And she wasn't even that good at it. She, they were basically just hiding. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, a lot of them had either... Kain was writing love letters to a woman whose fiancé had died as the fiancé. Yeah. And he was basically... So, so some of them were trying to keep hope alive, but they were trying to do so in intensely small ways. Um, actually, 
literally only the four that like uh, actually yeah other than Celez um, uh, Edgar and Setzer come to none think of them were trying to do anything come to think of it you as Celez through the second half of the story are the one who leads them on those journeys of Again, becoming the hero. Right. Edgar was trying to get his castle back because if he had his castle, he could do something. Right, but he was powerless without it. He, and and Setzer was trying to get the airship back for the same reason. Mind you, this was the second airship, the one that was buried with his dead girlfriend. Which, by the way, that is one of the most beautiful moments in one in a Super Nintendo um, video game. Uh, when you, like, because the, all the music for the world of Ruin yes. is dreadfully depressing and ominous and plotting and you go through one of the the saddest points of the game not quite as sad as if you let Sid die but when you get <laughs> yeah. you, but basically the only other airship in the world well it, Setzer had one and it cracked apart when the shit hit the fan in in the first half of the game there's only one more and it's in the tomb of his dead fiance. I, I don't know if they, they, they were actually I, engaged I think or not, what happened is they were racing each other and hers and, crashed. And no, or they no. were racing each other and she was always pushing the envelope. So right. he turned back and she was like, I can get higher. It was an Icarus moment. And he never saw her again. Right. And they found the airship weeks later and yes. she had crashed. He refurbished it and he put it in her tomb. And buried her with it. And, he's, and you go into this tomb... And he actually tells you this story, and it is. It's tragic, and the music is beautiful for it. I mean, just this beautifully sad piece. And you get to the airship, and it, and it is the first moment and it, uh, of... Uh, it changes the entire music for the game, and it is this, this incredibly hopeful piece of music as you rise to the skies once again on the back of sadness. But And it's a bittersweet hope. Yes. But it's it's hope. It, I think it has riffs from his theme and a few others, the old world world of uh, balance theme. And you just reminded me, the first character playable you encounter other than Terra is Locke, who is introduced as the thief slash treasure hunter. Mm-hmm. He's bristling about that. You don't find out why this man is so deeply ingrained in trying to find treasure, quote-unquote, until the world of ruin when you can forget to get him or not, but if you wish to pursue him, the man is finding or trying to find the Esper of the Phoenix, which is alleged to, like the mythical creature, come back to life. Why? Because, like Setzer, he has a loved one who died during one of his adventures. Except that she had been preserved, and he was hoping to bring her actually back to life. And, and he, he did momentarily, long enough for her to... Give final words. Yes. And it's like, ow. And again, it's this tragically sad scene when you find out. But um, this is the moment, and you can pass it by entirely, that leads him to ever encountering the first character in the beginning of the game. Mm-hmm. It's in the entire motivation. It's actually one of the few things that ties, because the first half of the game, your main character is Terra. In the second half of the game, your main character is Celeste. And the one of the few threads that ties the two of them together is Locke. Is Locke. Not... Celez is more of his love interest than Terra, or at least you think that's the case, until you realize neither one no, was... proxies until, for Rachel. Exactly. I think Rachel's her name. Maybe at the end of the game, he's actually starting to realize that well, he has he feelings have moved for Celez. Yeah. Exactly. Everything else, yeah, it was... You thought you knew who he was, and he wasn't that at all. It's a... The majority of the game is largely about familial ties and unex- or familial or deep emotional bonds in places you would mm. not have expected. And and places you would not have expected and what they drive people to do and the loss of now, them. Mind you, this is a game that was steeped in the milieu of the time of sci-fi magic and smash em up. Yeah. And yeah, it's basically a, a, the steampunk final fantasy. Um, but I think it's considered one you know, Without, again, like Star Wars, which we could go on for hours on, part of why we talk about it now so many years later is that it was one of the earliest attempts in a storytelling video game to tell a story where you had some level of agency, but also where the characters themselves were, and this isn't all of them, I mean, there were some joke ones like the Yeti, Mm -hmm. but to a large extent were people with truly grounded human emotions and arcs and narratives that made you care about why you were playing them mm-hmm. to the point where I think in the finale of the game I actually sat there trying to figure out not just who was good mechanically together but who felt right to go together to <laughs> confront the villain 
because the villain had so many portions of them that you could fight through. You could take all 14 characters or not. And I love the fact that it's, it's only intimated. But basically, there's no reason that the main villain couldn't just utterly annihilate you the moment you entered the room. He is that powerful. Except for the fact that, again, it wasn't enough for you to die. You had to die in despair. You had to know you had no chance. And because of that, he gave you a chance. What? And again, I love when the mechanics of a story, of a game, whatever, whether we're talking video game or tabletop, or where the rules of the story reinforce the narrative. Mm-hmm. In this case, one of his most devastating things was to reduce each of you to one little sliver of life. Mm-hmm. Not to kill you, he, but to let you know that he could. And you had that one brief moment during which to recover or you all, you were loose. Mm-hmm. And, and he could do it a couple times in a row. I've had one. it happen. Fallen one. And there were ways to cheese the battle, which were not yeah. that hard. But you could pretty much kill it. Like, if you set the, the characters up right, you could Genji kill them. Genji offering instant. ultimate weapon Valiant Knife, which was eight times in attack, or this is terrible, I still remember it, uh, the gem box plus ultimate mm-hmm. on Strago. Plus Go-Go Mimic, and then a couple others. <laughs> I still remember this is awful that I remember this. And if you actually hunted down the the, the all of the different dragons and and did some leveling up with the random ass dinosaurs on one of the oh, islands. What the hell was up with that? <laughs> I mean, no, it, I always everyone thought it was a plot point. It's one guy says this one thing about, hey, there's this really powerful this really powerful dragon on this one island. He's wrong. It's not a dragon. Oh, the it's, Italian, a, it's a bunch the, of dinosaurs. Yes, there's the dinosaur island. The T-Rexes are on, the uh, Brontosaurus are on, and then there's, I think, in the world of balance, the Intangiers, the invisible behemoths. Yes, you can cheese that one, because since they're invisible, you can exit on them, and Or they die. my preferred method, using Mog, the dancing bat teddy bear. Okay, so, again, like, the game is not entirely serious. Part of your, one of your recruitable characters is a dancing bat teddy bear, and he's very good. Mm-hmm. He's not a deep character until you discover in the world of Ruin, like everyone else he suffered, his entire race is dead. Mm-hmm. And you find him just standing on the place you met him in the beginning of the game. There's no deep narrative. There's just, I'm the only one left. That's the whole story he gets. There was a series, I think, which prompted this initial inquiry. I'm reading it right now. by N.K. Jemison. And as you know, I'm on the fence about some of the things in the series. But the opening of the book, which got me to read all of this, starts in second person, you, which is a difficult way to write and keep an audience engrossed because... It presumes that you, the reader, are now going to buy into the possibility that you are who is experiencing the story. Mm-hmm. You walk in upon your three-year-old child dead in your house and realize it is your spouse who has committed the act. And, of course, you also realize in the page that this is a you being told by the person who is actually experiencing this. Why she's using the you is unclear per se in that moment. I presume that it was someone disassociating from her experience and narrating it too. Because as she does in the next few pages, walk through the stages or the initial moments of grief of trying to just continue breathing and being long enough to figure out what to next do. Mm-hmm. But it was as fantastic as the rest of the story is, it was so deeply and immersively human that the character Essen, the woman who's telling whose story you're experiencing, you want her to be happy again or to at least find peace. Even within those first few pages, you want her to no longer be in this moment she's at, and you hate the man who has done this to her. And eventually you meet Jija and her surviving child, Nasen, and their character arcs as they evolve later on. But it was a wonderful example of not just the why now, what motivates a person, because Essen's initial immediate motive is after she gets through the grieving, the doctor pulls out of the room, I'm going to kill him. And that's most of what drives her through the apocalypse she's living through, a literal apocalypse of volcanoes, etc., ash falling from the sky. She wants to live long enough to murder her husband and find her daughter if she's still alive. That's not original, but it's totally and utterly... And it doesn't have to be original, because it, didn't, it is true. It, is emo- it was emotionally true and believable. And the fact that people have magic capable of causing continents to explode is secondary to the fact, or to the story you're witnessing of someone wanting to hunt down the man who's wronged her and hoping she survives long enough within this context to do it. 
the story goes a lot of other places from there that I won't get into, but that moment is what sold me on reading or wanting to read the series. And it's probably the foundation of whatever why now moment you have in the book. Um, if that's the, the the start of the story, well, it's the obvious why now. If the story picks up later, then presumably it's because there's the opportunity. I'm guessing that... This is a spoiler for, I think, book two. But again, as I've said at the opener, there will be spoilers, whether from my story or elsewhere. And I apologize, we stole most of FS6 and Star Wars at this point. Yeah, well, whatever. For those of you new to either... Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, there's probably no one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there, Nassen's the one who finally kills Jija after she, early on, had realized that her father was capable of murdering her brother and makes the decision to not be as... Uh, granted, Ucha was three and Nassen, I think, is nine or so. Not be as uh, unaware of her situation, which is a horrifying thing for a nine-year-old to think. I have qualms about how that moment was sussed out, but again, that's more about technique than it is about the real. Again, the emotional mm-hmm. reality, which I still felt the horror of, because for a child to ponder in this moment, I can't call you daddy anymore. You're too much of a monster for me to believe that story anymore. I have to still survive and depend upon you, though. So I will still try to frame my re- behavior in a way that will get you to give me the things I need, and that shift in perception is horrifying regardless of how it was done what is the geekly oddcast it's a panel show of television i mean seriously where else was i supposed to go and watch a gomez adams ride a rocket ship on a railroad track gaming and the dice say 17 oh my god 17 is mystic quest and whatever comes to mind why does Zod need a starship? Alternating Thursdays on the Geekly Oddcast. There, from I know we talked a bit about Star Wars and Final Fantasy VI, but from film, video games, story, like any stories you've experienced, are there what are the most memorable beginnings for you, or the ones you found yourself struggling with? Terra Enigma uh, has one of my favorite beginnings. Less because of the why now moment. Actually, the more I think about it, Terra Enigma has no good why why now moment. In fact, I mean, it seems to. It it seems to until you realize your character was manipulated into everything. So, why don't you start by? Okay. So, Terra Enigma has one of the greatest setups for a game. Uh, it really takes you into the... If you've played a lot of uh, RPGs from the Super Nintendo era, Terra Enigma plays with all of them. It, it knows you know what to expect, and it uses that. Not, sub, not Sometimes subverting it, not always. But the point is, it's letting setting you up to expect certain things and using the fact that you're expecting them. So if I'm not mistaken, you live in a village under the under the ground. Well, no, or, it starts out. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I could very easily go off into a lot of detail here, but you start off in the classic uh, opening RPG village. It's a small town somewhere, I, an, an idyllic place where life has never changes. Um, and you're talking. Sky's to people. always blue. Sky's sky's always blue. Um, it's establishing a few things about the world, such as that people are talking about the crystal blue in the sky or something like that. And there are these and, magical floating bubbles in the right. sky. Right, so you think that's probably... normal to everyone. Yeah, it's normal to everyone, so you think that's probably it. And and since it's an RPG, and, and uh, um, a Japanese RPG, that isn't actually that standout. Um, and you're doing the standard thing, like you're causing trouble in the town, um, and... You walk like you have to go and apologize for trouble you caused on the previous day, and you walk back into the elder's house, and a bunch of your friends are standing around this door, going, "We're trying to to break in, see if you can break into this door." And um, you do, you do. You're the hero because you're the hero, and you go down, and there's Pandora's box in the basement. Uh, they actually call it Pandora's box, <laughs> fittingly. And everyone in the ta- and when you open it, everyone in the town freezes except for the elder. And the elder basically comes in and calls you an idiot and says, look what you did. That was never supposed to be opened. Now you have to leave the village. There are these five towers you have to reawaken. Uh, and when you do, the village will be restored. Okay, fine. 
And still standard. Until, even class, you're still even classic hero's journey. Exactly. Until you walk out of the elder's house and he's like, okay, head on out. And in all your time looking around the town, it would probably have escaped your notice on the first playthrough that there is no exit to the town. And all of a sudden, there is now a gateway out of the town. It hadn't been there before. That's a pretty big shock right there when you realize, wait, wait, what? And when you walk out of the town, you realize you're not in some random town on the surface of the earth. You are underground. You are underground on the inside surface of the earth, as if the earth was like a hollow earth, with this big blue like sun or core at the top, which is the crystal blue they were talking about, which now makes no sense that they were because they were saying stuff like, I can see hopes and dreams reflected in the crystal blue. Like I'm actually seeing visions. You're, you know, and every time you go to one of these towers and awaken it, you awaken one of the continents on the surface. I believe of the, the phrase is "Congratulations, you've resurrected North America." Yeah, and now the thing is, that sounds like a why now moment, except that what you later find out in the in the game is that this village was the last pocket of life on the Earth, and. Um, for the most part, the Elder was in complete control of what went on. The people didn't really have a lot of free will. It's an open question, in fact. There's something, I think, after you've cleared the last tower that forces you not to return to the village, but instead to... Well, you return to the village and he basically has, says, you've got to go up to the surface. Right, and fix everything up there. Right. Basically, but, what you did wasn't enough. Keep going. Basically, you find out later on that the the um, you were forced into opening that door. You didn't realize it at the time. You thought you were just being a troublemaker, ha ha ha. But those, the the basically the most of the townsfolk weren't really in control of themselves. Only a few were, and it's actually an open question if if the town had even existed the day before, or if it was in some sort of suspended animation, but if this again, was the only day. You, the player, can't make the game happen no. without opening the door. We, no, you can't. And at the same time, if that town had existed for time immemorial, or it had been being held in stasis for time immemorial, there's no why now moment. It's just whatever brought it out, because I don't want to give it away... Broad chose to bring it out at that moment, and everything proceeds from that that point forward. And you can say that trigger point is the why now, but at the same time, there's no reason to bring to it be about. Fair, that the point. game does play deeply with the idea of predestination. Oh, very much and so. What it means to be a hero, and the hero to whom? Exactly, it very much does. And I guess that's why that it, it's not actually there's there is. There's some talk in the game about the fact that everything that's happening is happening prematurely. So the why now moment is, in fact, an a it shouldn't have been now. It should have been later. You, you started the rebirth of the world too soon for right. whoever wanted it to happen to have it happen. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a fun, twisted game that's not necessarily that easy to figure out what's going on, partially because the translation... Or it plays like a Zelda game, which is... I think yeah. part of what makes it's an action, which I think so. For those of you who've played Zelda or Secret of Mana or Evermore, which is the less loved, beloved mm. sequel, quote unquote, where, as you can tell, big fans of storytelling games. Yeah. I think partly because it's a lot of what we do in both our work and our pastime. Mm-hmm. Is there anything from. I mean, I can think of. Well, I'll bounce out a couple. So. I know a couple of these you haven't played. Okay. Really to an extent. So tell me at any given point if you don't want to know more. <laughs> I mean, as long as you stick to the opening, it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Again, since it? we're talking about where to begin. Mm-hmm. So I, I probably went in further into the game than I should have been with Terranigma, but you've played. That's okay. So. I'm fairly sure angry nerds are ready to hunt you down as we speak. I actually worked very hard to not give anything away further than um, Act 2. Other than other than a couple of offhand comments that say that the stuff was happening early, and because of the nature of Terranigma, it's actually hard to tell if they're right or not. True. So I'm playing Near Automata, which is a kind of halfway between a remake and an and a love letter to earlier versions of a similar story that the game developers have written. You also don't need to have played any of those games to actually understand what's going on. More or less, you play androids. Robots have taken over the Earth. Humans want you to get rid of the robots so that they can leave the moon and come back to Earth. Again, 
not, I would say, classic hero's journey, but pretty cut and dry. The game starts with you playing to be the female android whose job is to go murder robots, landing on a factory. Well, going toward a factory, you get shot down, you land on the factory, you fight your way through it, and your job is to go hunt down the biggest robot there who's causing a ruckus. Fairly standard, fairly action-oriented. You've, if you've played any type of fighting or shooting game but has a somewhat of a story and you figure, okay, this is basically going to be running through a series of bigger beat-em-ups, getting, or bigger beat-this-up, get bigger sword, bigger, in this case, more chips to plug into your robot, your Android body, and beat the foozle in the day. A lot of the stories, you don't tend to care much about the avatar you're running through with, the mm. representative of you. It's either completely null and void as a character so you can project yourself as the player and your personality onto the body you're wandering through the story in, or it's at most a emoji-spouting vessel that reacts to things in a nominal way. Very quickly on, though, you are joined up by a scout, 9S, who is chatty, overly so. You scold him on it, and he immediately starts asking all the questions that you, the player, would want to know. For instance, as you're beating robots, they start, they fur off, they don't talk at first. And then as you get further on, they start screaming, ow, 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 kill, 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 and other random nonsense. Then there's the loudspeakers going on about workers assembling. And he says, oh, that's just, you know... Obviously, this is post-apocalyptic. They're inhabiting a... I think it's Hawaii. Man is left behind. You... It's an awful fight. You're basically the only person who was meant to go... Who survived a, I think, 12-person mission. And you have to destroy everything. It's... Even on easy difficulty, it can be rather hard to get through. To the point where when you finally get through to fight the Goliath, it is many times your size with giant buzzsaw arms, fights, fires missiles and other things... If you've ever played the old-fashioned screen-scrolling shoot-'em-up games, you know, uh, top-downs, it's like that in the amount of stuff covering your screen. I was almost ready to go, yeah, I'm kind of done. But the battle gets more desperate. 9S dodges through. He loses the glider on to save you. He gets smashed half to bits, landing on there, and he's trying to desperately hack the thing you're fighting on to break it down enough for you to destroy it. You finally manage to succeed. And at this point, he's been saying, you know, the conversation's gone to the point of, well, do you think they have feelings or not? And he's going, no, they don't. They're just prattling on because his job is to study machines. Although he doesn't really know what he's talking about either. You then try climbing onto this thing you shut down long enough to rescue him. Because again, your androids, the body is only so necessary. As long mm. as you're self has been sent back up through a link they can just put that data into a new body classic transhumanism mm -hmm. you can you are willing to sacrifice or to a certain extent destroy the body you're in because it's not you anymore so it makes it interesting that she tries so hard to recover the physical him and she immediately starts trying to apply repairing a, you know, things to repair him with the patch him with the pod says he's too damaged because you have these little and you know robot pods helping you out he gives you control of the glider to finally take out the boss. You do that, you land back down on it, and you try to say, you try to request uh, your command to send down a satellite blast, basically just to wipe out everything. And three more of the Goliaths emerge from the water. And you're realizing, you lost. This is a no-win situation. You start asking, well, wait, did you make sure to back us up? And he said, don't worry, there's an, you know, I, I got you up there. And she says, but what about you? Or something to that effect. He says, there wasn't enough time. We have to do this now. And so they make the request to initiate the black box sequence, which is basically a nuclear reaction. And right as they click them together, he goes, it was an honor to serve with you. And she goes, you too. <laughs> That's the end of the demo, or the prologue. The very, and this is only a minor spoiler, so I'll give it to you if you don't mind. Okay. You... Get back to the bunker, which is in space. It's an orbital station. You're recovering. And he comes in to greet you. And goes through the whole initial greeting all over again. Oh. I, actually, I, I may have slipped up there. I think that's where you find out from the others that there wasn't enough time to back him up. So all of that bonding you've done, and I only tangentially talked about it, but... It's, he's, there's constant chatter from his part of trying to be friendly because most of his life is spent solo. So to actually have someone like him to do this trekking around the world full of monsters and ask the questions that you as the player want to know of why is this happening, how long has this been going on, 
And he doesn't change. Throughout the entirety of the story from there on, he is always the one pushing to find out more and more. Even when you encounter robots who are passive, or there's one where you get to rescue uh, a daughter robot or sister robot, and she asks stupid questions like, what is the wind? Or what is this? And he starts going on about, well, you know, it's force applied to da-da-da. And out of the blue, she goes, can you two make babies? And he starts, I, I, I don't know. And you start to realize how little these human-like beings have been given to accomplish what the humans want them to do. You start to identify more with them than the humans who never are seen. And But that moment, that deeply, right at the moment of self-sacrifice, where you understand that he was willing to destroy everything they had acquired to still accomplish the mission, and her acknowledgement of that, and I think it, they cut to just her standing there, realizing that and clenching her fist. And you start to wonder, wait, why was she so resistant to bonding with him? Has this happened before? How many times? Because again, transhumanism, the body is impermanent. Mm -hmm. And they don't need all of the self, just the important parts, the one that remembers the objectives, the orders, the commands, the things to do and not do, the questions not to ask. And maybe it's better if they forgot the things they learned that time. It's not for nothing that as you play it, you discover a lot of the side monsters you fight are named Sart in Kierkegaard and <laughs> Engels. I, those are not spoiler names. The others I could give are. But that was the moment of this blasting and shooting and everything. I went, wait a minute. There are actual people in this story. And I want to know why they're willing to put up with this. And from a character standpoint, you've got that why now moment because you've got the, of course, why now? This is a golden opportunity that stresses these specific character aspects, these characters in these particular ways to ask these questions. You put them in the moment of action where they don't have time to get the answers, but they mm -hmm. still need to know something. But it's the moment that that relationship was severed, but only from one side. Yes. And, And so there's your why now. Because that attempt, when the relationship builds again, that attachment is so much deeper. And there is one line I could say which spoils the ending of the first arc entirely in some I'd ways. Say, let's I not won't. do that. But when it came around, I went, oh, damn. Because it went back to those earliest questions of, I had of, how long has this been going on? This isn't the kind of game I usually play because the mechanics of it tend to annoy me. The things like, <laughs> I'm going to wreck my fingers. So yeah, I play on an easy, but I was willing to get over that apprehension to get to this answer. And the other one I'll give, which is, I realize we've been spending a lot of time on video games, but I think part of that gets to something generational too, which we can touch upon mm. before we dive into, as I think our last section, challenges we've encountered in where to start stories. Mm-hmm. So, fuck it. We've done Final Fantasy before. I'll go whole hog. I played 15. You're going to. I've told you the part of the opening that sold me on playing the game. Because, again, 30-year-old series, this is a franchise you either love or hate individual ones, and no one agrees on which. And it's very rare to meet an individual who loves all 15 of the main, much less the I-don't-know-how-many spinoffs. But, very simple narrative. You're a prince, you're about to get married, you're going on a road trip with your friends to where you and your wife are going to have your wedding. The car breaks down. <laughs> it's your father's car. It's a beautiful piece of craftsmanship. Your hometown is known. So there's a point of pride here. You know, this is a gift from your dad. You were supposed to take better care of it. You're out of gas. It's broken down. And the first playable moment is you as the four characters pushing the damn car <laughs> down the road to a gas station miles away bickering and sniping and whining at each other. And since, from what I understand, the game is supposed to be about friendship. Yes. It's a huge chunk but of the game. The thematic he establishes is brotherhood. Right. What are you willing to give up? So the why now is, why does it start there? Because it because this is a moment of just the four. And do you know, they, I think I've told you what they play right there as this is going on. It's Stand By Me. <laughs> It's, you know, a modernized version of it, but is that... Because they've got a car with a radio. It's not like mm-hmm. the radio's dead. 
And I forget whether or not they turn on the radio to get that playing or it just happens. But it's this... It sounds so damn cheesy in the same sense that it sounds so trite like the origins or the... When you break down to the components, the elements of the narrative, but the experience of it and the way they're bickering the back and forth feels so natural and partly because you have to mechanically force the damn car forward as they're arguing about whose turn it is. There are other mechanics in the story like or in the play of it, such as the repeated motions and behaviors, the fidgeting in the cars that... And I'm forgetting the... And Catherine Hales is a great book. It's old now about transhumanism and posthumanism. There's a term to describe things that are made to look like older versions of themselves only because we want to enjoy the feel of it. So, for instance, the old arcade app on the cell phone, or on the iPhone particularly, or the wooden veneer that was plastic, mm. in, which I think an example she uses, in station wagons. Or the, the classic one, I remember James Burke pointing this out, whenever a new product comes out, like a new... When plastic phones first came out, they were made to look like, like the old wooden phones. Yeah. Until... And then, when they, people could finally start taking advantage of what plastic could do, those plastic phones took on a, a certain quality that uh, a lot of people who grew up in the 70s and 80s recognize. When cell phones yes. started, they, were, they looked like rec- oh, phone God, receivers. The and then, with, the, with the briefcase. Yeah. Oh, God. You spend a lot of this game driving around in the car. You eventually can get ways to not have to get gas and everything, but the characters fidget and squirm and tell the same jokes and do the same body gestures. And at first, like, you know on an intellectual level this is all pre-programmed randomization. But it does a funny trick with your brain in addition to all the ways they interact in the story. And the realization I had is that, yes, they re- repeat behaviors, they tell the same jokes, they mock each other in the same ways. But if you've ever spent a lot of time around your friends... So do you. (laughs) The same stories get told. The same jokes get told. That's part of the reaffirming of the relationship. And that they put so much bloody effort, even to the unfinished initial launch version, to those means by which to establish that bond. That I went, okay, I know this is going to be flawed. I've followed the development cycle. And I know they've announced they're spending two years finishing it now that it's public. Which is insane, but say levee. We'll get into that on the Geekly Oddcast episode. Mm. But I went, I don't care. If you do it right, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'll am i briefly mention this one, partly because a lot of people, were, if, I, if I were to go in depth in this, would immediately turn the podcast off because <laughs> of the love it or hate it thing. Well, actually, I won't even use that. I won't even use it as the sole example. The indie game market has been, you know, moving forward, and you've got a lot of titles, things like, um, well, I guess one of the recent ones was Doki Doki Literature Club. Oh, um, but there was no, also that is un- bad. <laughs> there was also Undertale. There was yeah. a lot of these others that are like graphically and a lot of, in a lot of other ways. They're really nothing special. In fact, they're they're in, in many cases they're worse than nothing special. Or severely retro. In, in, and in, to the point that it almost seems like it would get in the way of the game, but the game works. In fact, often it works because of that and I know a lot of people that can't play games with with uh, older graphics and it's like, well, you're going to miss it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I occasionally I'll try Undertale, but it visually that is sometimes an impediment to me. Mhm. Because I I'm an auditory and visual person, so I identify with a lot of those conveyed. But you actually, that probably wouldn't be an issue for you in the case of Undertale, because while graphically it looks like an old school game, they put an enormous amount of work into the sprites. Right, which makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. But even so, there's a I'm, there's a, a bunch of games I've, I've played where it's. Dwarf Fortress can be an amazing game, with, and its graphics oh, are terrible. You don't uh, have to play Dwarf Fortress. Just look at the stories of people's experiences. No, you, you never get a good why now. It's just whenever you happen to start playing. No, no, uh, Boat Murder is a good example. I, I know. Um, actually, it, uh, one I wanted to point out that's interesting um, is in one where the why now moment sort of fails, and that's the Mass Effect series. I was going to ask you about that. Because you've got a clear why now for your character in Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3, but we're not going to talk... Just for readers or players, audience who haven't experienced this, how would you describe Mass Effect? Space opera or... uh, Yeah, I would say say in a large chunk it's space opera that moves more and more towards military sci-fi as the story goes on. So probably kind of a hybrid between, say, Galactica and Star Trek? 
Uh, yeah, I, I would say that's actually a pretty good one. Yeah. Okay. Um, in Mass Effect 1, the why now for your character is you get made a, um, uh, a Spectre, which is someone who basically has an unlimited amount of ability to go around the galaxy investigating issues. Uh, that's the why now. That's why it's opened up for your character. In the second one... But you're the first human yeah, to but, be made that. But as far as the overall plot of the game... That's and not deeply relevant. It, no. It's not very relevant at all. Uh, they try to tie it in a little bit more in Mass Effect 2 that, uh, in, 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 in one sense. In Mass Effect 2, the why now for your character is you were dead for two years and you've been res- resuscitated. And that's you got wh- better. Yeah. As it turns out, that the, the mission that you're sent on afterwards just happens to be the mission in front of you. You weren't resuscitated for it. At least I don't think you were. Um... There is some indications in Mass Effect 2 that the reason... So there's this... uh, So these are the reasons for your characters, uh, your character. But the overall stuff that's going down, this this existential threat to life in the galaxy that is happening, is largely... is almost entirely independent of the fact that you're there to do anything about it. Um, There is some small indication that one of the trigger points for it happening now, one of them, is the fact that humanity has risen to the point where it has. But that's not you. That's humanity. And it's not you becoming a specter. It's, the, it's just humanity being out among the stars. Did you, do you feel, having played all of these, and I've played most of 1 and 2, and I think a little bit of 3, do you feel that separation made your character in some ways less relevant? Uh, yeah, well, what it, what it sets up is this dynamic of you as the hero who happens to be in the right place at the right time. Um, you are the hero for that moment. It's not a. It's not a um, one of like. It, it all comes together. It's more like. Thankfully, there was someone who could stand up. Now, from a storytelling perspective, was that partly because they wanted to? Do you feel it's partly because they wanted to give you enough liberty in how you acted in those moments? I I think it's part of it. Because and they certainly give you, in the missions that you're on, they give you enough agency that you very much seem to be the central point that the story turns uh, around on. And they try to do this thing where you encounter this ancient relic in the first game that gives you enough clues that something's going on to face this existential threat. But... You know, you just happened to find it. If you hadn't, the existential threat was still there. It just would have gotten the drop on everybody. Which is sort of kind of a why now, but it's, and it sort of ties you in. But again, it's just you happening to be in the right place at the right time. Does um, that feel satisfying to you, though? I, I would say it doesn't come off as well in Mass Effect 1, because it, it, it in fact, has that problem. I, what is it about... You know this character that makes him special, other than the fact that he's a, a badass. Well, I think Greg's argument was that the story itself had to contort to make you important. Yes, actually, that's that's exactly it. The threat is so much bigger than you are. Now they double down on that in Mass Effect Two, making you even more of a badass, and that actually starts to work. It, it, it's almost to the point where it's like you've started becoming a legend. And then it makes sense. Well, in an odd way, they bring you back to make sure the legend becomes a legend. Right. And, and that sort of fits. It also fits that um, the, they gave um, the, the, that threat again a face. Uh, you know what they should have done is the opening theme for Mass Effect 2? Rick Astley. Oh, God. <laughs> you know. Um... But even though the the existential threat still exists in Mass Effect 2, the overall threat is less one of all life in the galaxy and more one of uh, the survival of of human colonies and stuff like that because they're the ones being targeted. And they tie it back into that existential threat. But because the scale's a little bit closer to home, uh, it comes off better. And you have more of a reason to be... In, it also helps you tie into the rest of the story because, well, in the first game, your character kept saying, hey, I see this great big threat, and no one believes you. In the second game, it's like, yeah, you're, you, they may still think you're the crazy person that was yelling about this threat, but at the same time, they know what you're dealing with right now. And even if they don't think it's as bad as you think it is, they understand why you're trying to stop it. So I've got one last question before we delve into the stories we've struggled with the beginnings of or found a good beginning for why do you think 
that medium itself, the video game, has become such a popular one through which to tell stories. Because it's partially interactive. And why is it... And for us, I it's, say. It's, it's It's partially interactive. It's immersive. Uh, you watch a movie and you're watching a story. And stories are fun in their own right. Um... One of the things people often say about books, and I find this to be true, is sometimes reading it, you're just in the story and you lose track of the world around you and that story is just what's real. Mm -hmm. I find that less with movies. Movies are a performance. You're watching it and and it's enjoyable and and they're really fun, but they're stories. Video games bring back that um, immersion. Even if largely you're not affecting the story in most kinds because it's really hard to program a video game where where you are largely in charge of the story. Usually it's down to a couple of choices. Do you find the narratives as compelling themselves themselves regardless of the agency you the player as Well the, player. the thing is that the the video games sets up situations where you can get invested in the aspect that you want to be invested okay. in especially in the the last couple of generations going back to Mass Effect you can play in multiple different ways so you start to be able to make choices based on what you find interesting I think it, you start to hear and BioWare is partially responsible for this but the idea of what was your shepherd which is the hero's title right like, and I think it's well for the uh, the Dragon Age, which was the parallel series they've done. It was the the Warden, the Champion, the Inquisitor. But the sense that it's not just or purely an avatar, but an identity you've crafted right. through the narrative of the story. One of the other things that the video games do that movies cannot is there. There's that concept in a movie, uh, and in a, actually it was originally brought up as a stage concept, the the, the Chekhov's gun, um, and. Everyone knows it is the idea of, oh, hey, I saw that thing, it's going to be important. But the the overall sentiment of the Chekhov's gun is nothing unimportant to the plot should be there. If there is a gun on the mantle place in Act 1, that gun better be fired sometime in the story or it shouldn't have been there in the first place. And we're not talking purely physical props. We're talking conceptual elements, themes, narrative, or... If there's a scene or a place or a detail presented. And, and sometimes that, um, like, the stuff you see is literally just to set the stage. But any detail that stands out beyond that must be important, or you're just... <laughs> or you're living a Sierra game, where you click on everything to find out what matters. But that's what video games do. Video games do away with the concept of the Chekhov's gun because you now get to experience pieces of the world solely for the sake of experiencing pieces of the world. You look at Bethesda games, like specifically like the Elder Scrolls games and the Fallout games where you can pick up everything. And sometimes there's just this tiny bit of world building in the fact that there's a bunch of items that you'll never use in a particular combination together that's like, okay, what made that happen? Well, I think part of the idea too is that you explore it through you explore through, through the avenues of that world through multiple characters, or mm-hmm. the perspective of multiple characters and multiple playthroughs, and that is the narratives you construct are largely built upon those individual navigations. Or um, I am trying to resist using the phrase Ludo narrative because I hate it so much, <laughs> but it is appropriate. There is the stories you experience in their collective, the collective gathering of mm-hmm. such. It becomes your understanding of the world of Skyrim or etc. And uh, video games also have a different path they take you through introducing the concepts of the world uh, to. Um, when a book is doing it, right, it's trying to get you up to speed enough on the, the nature of, let's call it the world, but if it was like a fiction book, it, it, it's world in a well, different... I think it, this, is, this touches upon a thing which transitions well into our next point too. Conveying things that must be known about the world, providing right. the context. The, particularly in places, in stories where the world as it is either has unusual rules or is alien or bizarre in some fashion. Right. That can be... That, that is as true for a standard fiction story where you're just dealing with an unknown family and you don't know their, their family dynamics, so they're strange and alien, to one of the crazy out there science fiction stories where the world is nothing like what you think it is. Like, actually, let's go with something like The Matrix where it turns out to be an entirely in-a-computer world. And in that case, as bizarre as the later stories, the movies went, Neo serves 
particularly in his early in the early scenes, as a wonderful proxy for the audience. He mm-hmm. asks the damn questions we do. Why this? What this? What does that mean? What are you doing? What's going to happen next? And look, you just said it there. In movies and in books, you often need a proxy for the audience. Sometimes in games you do too, because sometimes you can't just experience the world. Some of the rules have to be explained. Sure. Final Fantasy X, a lot of the social structures of the world really need to be stated. You're not going to figure them out. In that case, your character, the viewpoint character, is a foreigner to the world. Right. But other times in the world, you are uh, like that information is going to be conveyed... Just by the path you're taking through the game... Or, most dreadfully, through codices. Yeah. So think about games like, uh, you know, like one of the Mega Man games, especially in the X series where there's like an opening level. Oh, sure. And they're setting the tone of the game right there as you're moving through it. It's not just the fact that you're fighting robots somewhere. It's... It's the what you're fighting robots in, whether it's like an old abandoned factory and the fact that everything's going haywire, and now all of a sudden you've got a sense of what the what's going on in the world and why you're fighting, but just by fighting it. They're, you're not dwelling on a point. You're not explaining what the character knows or, or seeing them react to stuff. It's you reacting to it. Um, so it's a different way of conveying that information. If you were going to do it in book form, you'd have to personalize the main, the, the, the main character, have, go into their thought processes. And, and that becomes a question of... What form of narrative? First, second, third? Right. Omniscient or not? Do you alternate characters? How do you convey the information? Is it through characters' knowledge pre-existing or as mm. they learn through acting or exploring the world? Do they have unique senses or abilities by which to convey or learn about the world that you wouldn't normally, which can be either a trap for the writer or not? If a character has senses that readers normally don't and they don't use those to tell the, you about the world in ways that they would know, the reader is going to wonder why. Um, the inverse, though, and still one of my favorite storytelling games to date, which you have yet to play, is the original Planescape Torment. Because, again, we're talking about where the story begins. You wake up in a morgue. And you were dead. As a floating skull conveys to you when you try to figure out what is going on. And then tries to read to you the notes you have left to yourself on tattooed on your back. So, this world is weird. You can die and come back. There are things on your back you have left as notes to yourself, and the talking skull hesitates at one of them. (laughs) Can you guess which one that is? I think you've told me before, it's don't trust the talking skull. Correct. (laughs) As you may have noticed, we have yet to touch upon how some of this works in practice, particularly with our own stories and games. Fortunately, there's always a part two. If you enjoy the show, you can leave a review on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Or you can show your support on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash And of course, if there's a story you want to share or something that's inspired you, you're welcome to tag us online at hashtag UBTigers. Hope to see you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.